intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast. And here is your host of the show, Efren Guzman. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, where I blow up the news on a verbal scale. I am your host, Efren Guzman. My guest today, he's a writer, producer, director. You see him in a lot of films. The ladies and gentlemen, John Kapalos. Very good. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Good evening. How are you doing, man? I'm grand. I'm grand. Thank you. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to talk to you, man. And I know we've been trying to, you know, playing like phone tag here this day, this day, and finally we're talking. So it's a, it's an honor, and thank you for giving me your time. Oh, please. That's great. Uh, so how are you doing? How, how's, how's, how's life treating you? Life is well. Um, I'm excited about this movie that I have a very teeny part in. That's at the Academy Awards this year, The Shape of Water. Yes, yes. And... Um, and um, you know, I'm excited to, about life in general. I wake up every morning, as I just did, and look forward to the day. And uh, today I'm speaking with you, first thing, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing what I've been doing for... This year will mark my 40th year of being an actor. Wow. Wow. I started in August of 1978 at Second City of Chicago. And um, it's been a long, circuitous road. <laughs> and here I am. Yeah. Um... So. When you was young, um, what was the age that you found out in your life that you wanted to be an actor? Well, I started pretty much when I was in, uh, probably in public school, like in grade, I grew up in Canada, so I'd say grade six or um, five, I think I did a play in in public school, but then I really did a play in high school uh, when I was in grade 10, I did uh, Guys and Dolls, or uh, yeah, grade 10, and um, it really grabbed me. It was a musical, and it was fun to do, and uh, people uh, paid attention. I got out of class. I got to, uh, you know, I, I got, I, I could do it. You know, I could, I could act. And uh, as, as as rough as it was, first time out. I mean, I it was something I wanted to do. So then I went off to university, and I studied university for three years. And in the middle of my third year of university, I realized, boy, this is not. Um, scratching my itch uh, I, and I'd been doing some plays in, in college and in university there so uh, I really just wanted to you know pursue it so I I um, came out as it were <laughs> I told my father and mother I wanted to be an actor yeah. which uh, so shocked and surprised them not entirely yeah <laughs> and, um, my dad very wisely said to me hey listen if you want to do this you should maybe try it for a year and if it doesn't work out if you don't become professional then it's back to school mm. and he was very very kind in giving me that opportunity so uh, I mean you know what I mean to say is that um, you know they raised me uh, they were they were loving and kind and I thought it was a good thing because uh, I, I would have gone back to school uh, but within the first I mean you know had things not worked out but within that year I got a job at Second City in Chicago and didn't look back well, you know, you hear a lot of people who came from Second City have a lot of experience with that. What was that experience like for you? Wow, Efren, that's a that's a loaded question. Um, it was it was everything. It was great. It was tough. It was competitive. It was um, 
it was grueling. It was uh, unkind sometimes. People mm-hmm. were, you know, when you're in your 20s and you've got sharp uh, elbows and you want to get ahead in your business, people can be, um, myself included, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, it's like a game of hockey, you know, it's or something. People are really just trying to win, mm-hmm. get ahead. And um, so uh, Second City was a, a total experience. So, I mean, it was good and bad, but ultimately it was great. I mean, to say there wasn't bad in it would be untruthful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, for me, at the very beginning, very competitive. A lot of people didn't like me. I was overly cocky. Uh, I had I was 22, you mm-hmm. know, and it was my first job, really, let alone professional. I mean, I really didn't, I mean, I had jobs, like I worked in a record store and blah, blah, blah. I did menial jobs but um, yeah. not menial but uh, you know yeah I know I know what you mean yeah jobs that were jobs that weren't like intended to be my profession yeah and um, so Second City was it was great I mean I still obviously I mean I was there for for eight years and um, it gave me everything I needed it gave me my whole toolbox in, 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 in this business for this business uh, at least it gave me the um understanding of the tools that I needed to develop, maybe put it that way. Yeah. Who were your classmates at Second City? Do you have any other classmates people would know of? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, the most, I think, auspicious classmates, uh, Richard Kind was a guy I worked with. Oh, okay. And Richard uh, came in the company later. I was with a group of people like... Um, I mean, it was an amorphous group. I was with a bunch of people uh, in touring that were different in the main company. But basically, um, people like Mike Haggerty, uh, I don't know, would you know him? Yeah. Uh, Megan Fay, uh, Isabella Hoffman, and then there were names like, you know, when I first came in the company, George Went and Jim Belushi were yeah. in the company, and, um, 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 you know, so uh, what other names? I mean, Colbert and, and all those guys, Carell, came after me. Yeah. Uh, there were... A bunch of other people that were that did very well. I mean, you know, God, I think um, I haven't had coffee yet. But, uh, <laughs> no worry, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> but but I think you know a lot of the people. Um, there were lots of people that I worked with that did very well, went off and did very well. I mean, there, there were a slew of names. Bonnie Hunt um, yeah. was another one that was there when I was there. So. Yeah. Um, in, in a way, I know people want to know the names and the stars. There are lots of people that I worked with that went off and did things like were you know writers and producers that people don't know as household names. There are actually people that that were more um, valuable in terms of contacts than than the people that went off and become stars. The people who want to go off and become stars um, are stars, and like uh, you know, to get them on the phone is very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, so, like, you know, going through the... Huh? Even if, even if they're friends, right? Yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, going through that experience, um, and you said you was the... Was you actually the youngest person there, or was there other people younger than you at Second City? No, no, there were people that were um, younger than... In and around my age. We are all around the same age. There oh. were people... It was a big age range. I mean, there'd be people that would be, you know, uh, anywhere from their early 20s to their early 30s okay so and when you're in your early 20s somebody's in their late 20s seems like they're you know eons older than you uh, or, but um 
for the most part, my group of people was my age range. When I started, I was 22, 23. When I left, I was about 30. So. Oh. And um, after Second City, where how did you proceed to expand your career? Like, where did you go from there? Well, I mean, when I was at Second City, I started yeah. doing films, and that's when I, oh, I worked on Oh, while you was at Second City, you was doing films? Okay. I did uh, Breakfast Club and when I was touring with Second City. I mean, it was uh, when I was uh, in New York. Yeah. came back in Chicago, and I did Sixteen Candles. And I did about eight or nine movies while I was at Second City in Chicago. Oh, so, okay. Um, that was happening sort of concurrently, and then uh, there was a point where Second City, you know, when there, there's a time, a natural time when you leave, when you've worked there long enough, it's given you what you need, and um, there are other people that want, need, want your job. So you uh, you feel like you're in the, uh, you know, here's your hat, what's your hurry? There are people behind you going, hey, when are you going to go? Um and very politely, but you know, hey, you're really good. You should go off and go to Hollywood or New York. <laughs> I want your job. <laughs> so, um, like, uh, like so I, I, uh, I finished Second City and then went off. And I think one of the very first big projects I did after Second City was Roxanne. Yes, that's right. Like it's funny because you did like I think three John Hughes films concurrently, right? Basically, so you went from six- I did actually I would did four. Four. I was in Ferris okay. Bu- for Ferris Bueller, but um, the sequence I was in was cut out of it. Oh. Um, at least my part was cut out. Um, film was long, John overshot. I mean, yeah. that's just the way he worked. Uh, it was disappointing, but, you know. Yeah. Worst things could happen. <laughs> um, I, was, I, was in, um, I was in 16 Candles, yeah. Breakfast Club, um, Weird Science, and then, as I said, Ferris Bueller, but um, cut out. You see, and those are all like classic films that they're still shown today. And, you know, it's amazing how the generation now, when they see that film, they're like, wow, this is great. Like, I don't, I don't know. I think there was there was something special about that era in filmmaking where it was like it was nothing was so PC like it is now. And I, I don't know. Do you see a difference the way films are shot today than it was back then? Well, I mean, I remember when I worked on films back then. In the 80s, I realized that they were being made differently than the ones I had seen when I was growing up. Yeah. So, I mean, film is always a a, a, a form, whether it's an art form, it's a business slash art form that's always morphing. <clears throat> I think what John's, you know, to get into the heart of what John's um, skill was, was that, um, you know, uh, up until that point, a lot of teen comedies, and it's still the same today, there are lots of lousy teen comedies, and the ones that really work, um, I would say even the ones, the films that really work, period, are the ones that respect the audience. But um, John's films really, really spoke to teenagers in a way that films hadn't spoken to them at that point. Mm-hmm. Whether films are made any differently, I think a lot of people like yourself were young in 1980 and in the 80s, and you look through that decade through rose-colored glasses. As I sort of look at the 60s as my decade where I love the movies and things like that, mm-hmm. there are lots of films from that period that I think were never made the same. So everybody yeah. cl- clings on to their, um, the, the, what, what they were comfortable with and what they loved as kids. You know, there's that sweet spot age between 10 and 14 when you, you discover things and that they're yours and you embrace them and you go, oh, this is the best thing ever, you know. 
for me, you know, Steve McQueen is always going to be the greatest actor ever because he was my boyhood idol, you yeah. know? So, um, uh, and, and nobody will compare to him, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but there, there are things that are changing in the movie business. And I think that what happens is that John Hughes just had really great ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think all of them were fantastic. I think that Long Duck Dong, when you see that in Sixteen Candles, now to me that's a bit racist. Yeah, and with um, the dong, yep, yep. I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the way they make fun of the donger and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but and, and there are things that have aged well. There are things that haven't aged well. I mean, The Breakfast Club. Um, uh, John uh, John Bender's character basically is slut shaming Molly Ringwald's character throughout the whole thing. Yeah. So they, there's a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable, but also real. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said, I don't know, to talk to PC culture, to, to take things out um, of the culture and say, well, Woodrow Wilson is a shouldn't be honored anymore because he was a Southern racist. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of problems with what, with what we're doing with the past and how we mm-hmm. reevaluate the past is what we do. But we can't, um, change it in a way, and I think that a lot of movies from the '80s present a, a, a world view that is um, maybe a little bit more honest than we're seeing sometimes today. Yeah, that's true. Like even like landmark shows like All in the Family and like The Jeffersons, you know, they didn't shy from it, and you know, the words, the things that they said on television back then, you can't even say that now. You can't even you can't even like have a storyline with you know, race, you know, racism or rape culture now, the way the society is. So it's just, I don't know, I think, I guess everything changes for the better. But back then, I think it was more groundbreaking because you can go into storylines and go into depth and not be afraid of the consequences because you learn something from it. But it's a little bit different now, but I don't know. I think even movies and television, everything, the landscape changed, you know. But I think, it, like you said, the 60s were different, the 80s are different, and now, where we are now, it's totally different now. Do you agree? Well, I mean, if you look at movies today, the technical aspect of films today is unlike it's ever been. I mean, films now have a beauty and a, a technical mastery. Uh, there's, the, you know, and, and with digital and with computer you know, there there is a limit. There is no limit to where films can go. Now there is this beautiful, like I happen to really love the movie The Shape of Water, but it is a fantastically beautiful looking movie. And also, you can go to the movie theaters and see the film in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or in Los Angeles or New York, and you're seeing the same quality print. Mm-hmm. So you know, when I was young, you'd go to movies and. Um, people, you know, think, oh, yeah, the movies in the 60s and 50s, 60s, great movies. But technically, when you went to the movie theater, um, it was not what it is today. <laughs> uh, I, I would even venture to guess that today's movie audience would, you know, everybody loves analog and they love the look of film and stuff like that. But you go to see a scratchy print in a movie theater, um, even if it's a present-day movie that's been making the rounds. And I grew up in London, Ontario, and you get these scratchy prints of movies that have been around, um, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about one aspect of it. People look at the past and they go, well, you know, I mean, I always think, well, it'd be fun to live in the Wild West, but, you know, they didn't have penicillin. <laughs> 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 I catch a lot of colds and flus, you know? Yeah. So, um, 
the past is always easy to look at from our present. I think that movies today, um, I mean, there's a lot wrong with American movies for the most part. Um, but uh, there's also, I, I, I think the thing that hasn't changed, Efren, is that the best thing about the most, um, I'm looking for the word, the most, um, the most powerful thing still or is the idea or the ideas behind movies mm -hmm. and people are still afraid of ideas mm -hmm. right yeah um and and uh, you know what let's say the breakfast club posited was like you know a world of these children who are not children but still dealing with issues and and that is a world it, film has the ability to take you into these worlds and to show you things and um you know, if the ideas and if the people that are making the movies have a conscience, the problem with a lot of movie makers and people is they don't give a damn about the ideas they're putting out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, and a lot of people sort of disassociate themselves. They make a movie that where some violent act happens and then the movie gets released and kids are imitating the violent act. It's like, well, you know, I, I take no responsibility for that. Well, in a way... You're not responsible for what the kid did, obviously, but you're you're responsible for the ideas you put out there, and um, that's something that's become more and more evident. Yeah. Like I saw this film Three Billboards the other day. Everybody's raving about it. Boy, I did not like it. And the idea behind it was I don't know. There's a lot of lots of things that I thought were corrosive and not good. Yeah. But you know, and and I'm not you know I'm not a purist or a moralist, and I don't. Try not to judge other people too much. I'm a very liberal guy, but I also do believe believe that um, uh, that um, what people see greatly affects them. Yeah, you have to be careful with what you see and, and say, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, when I was a, when I was at Second City, and my producer Bernie was a toughie, he was a great guy, but you know, I'd play. Let's say I'd like to you know play this weird character. Maybe I play a homeless guy or something. Or, come out on stage and do something. I remember trying various outre, out there characters. My, my producer would come backstage, he goes, well, why do we want to see this person? What is it about his condition that is enlightening the audience? And as a performer and as a writer and as an improviser, you have a duty to make sure that what you're showing the audience is something that is worth showing the audience so they can examine the human condition. Otherwise, you're not doing your gig. And um, sometimes I see films where I see characters and I go, I don't want to see this person at all. They don't interest me. They're, they're ugly. They're violent. They're no, they're, there are no things that really make me interested in watching them. As a matter of fact, uh, I think a person like this can be corrosive to watch. There's nothing I'm learning from it. And I think that a lot of movies mistake sort of outrage and outrageousness for character. And outrageous behavior is character behavior, and I and I think that you know um, there's been a whole genre of movies, maybe even started by Tarantino, that sort of pushed this 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 thing of outrageousness. Yeah. And with an actor, and you're asked to do something like uh, you know spit in somebody's eye and kick them in the guts, and and uh, you know and then lick your hand afterwards, or some really gross thing that you're supposed to do as a sort of sadistic killer. You know, sometimes you ask yourself, well, why the fuck am I doing this? And, 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 and um, 
you know, there are there have been instances where I've sort of said, you know what, I don't like the ideas behind this. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't walked away from much, but I really try to examine it. And it's a whole different road. But, um, and, and it's really apparent when you have children and when you have, you know, a wider world around you, you know, your wife, you know, women react to movies much, much differently than men do. That is particularly, true. Particularly violence, right? Yeah, that is true. Let me tell you a story. Um, I went with my wife when I was living in New York City to go see The Hills Have Eyes, the remake. And right. we had to walk out the theater because I don't know if you've seen that that film, the remake, but there was a scene where the the mutants, whatever they are, like it was in, in, in the original, they were just I think it was more scarier because there were people. This one, they were like kind of mutants. Like um, the guy went into the the camper and fondled and molested like the the girl and 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 the mom and stuff and she couldn't handle that she had to walk out the theater had to walk out with her because it was too strong so you're right women handle it very differently but um going into acting um i don't know if you ever are are you familiar with rob zombie films but his films are very uh, you know it's 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 very suggestive and it's very violent and it's it's almost like the seventies era, like the um Charles Bronson Death Wish, where you see things and it's not left to the imagination. You actually see them doing things and they're actors. Like you you would never put yourself in that mindset to do a role like that, right? You said certain roles you feel are disgusting. You wouldn't put yourself in that mindset to do that, right? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate in that I mean I've done a lot of things that have been edgy. Yeah, and I've done movies that I think are even maybe not even good uh, for the world. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, whether they've added anything to the discussion, but um, you know, I, I, I try to you know I I try to evaluate a script, and I mean, um, the uh, I remember I was asked to play John Wayne Gacy once. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and I was looking at that script. It was eventually played by a friggin' Brian Dennehy. Eventually played him. Yeah. But that was a situation where I lived and worked in Chicago when John Wayne Gacy was alive, and I did, obviously didn't know anybody that was killed by him. But I mean, it affected the community. Yeah. And it's like, do I really want to have this guy uh, on my my gallery of characters that I've played? Um, and the answer was no. <laughs> wow. You know, there are, you know, there are situations that come up where you you. You read something and you go, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And there are situations that come up and go, oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. So. Uh, what, what, what are, what are, I mean, so you have a body of work, a whole body of work. What, like, is there um, a particular role from all the roles you have that are similar to each other that you play? Like, do you play, like, certain type of roles? Or? Well, I think that um, what happens is that actors invariably well not even get slotted i mean the way you get in i used to get in there got into the movies by playing a lot of um hate the word but you know sleazy funny you know uh, like the guy in 16 candles yeah. and stuff like that you get in the door by playing certain character types okay and you try to expand it uh, the issue is that you know if you get in the door playing that character then they see you as that character so um yeah i've played guys within that range um you know, when I was younger, I played guys differently than I do now when I'm older. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I tend to, you know, I, the, the, the thing about me is that, um, and there are other actors that have this, but I can do comedy and drama, mm -hmm. and I can also do blue collar and white collar. And there are a lot of actors that sort of 
you know, can only do drama or can only do comedy or can only do, you know. So I have a, a, a room to move a few places that way, you know. So I can play a, you know, a construction worker and I can play a, a boss. Mm-hmm. So, and um, um, my my wheelhouse is basically American characters. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I've auditioned for English and British types, but, you know, I don't do a British accent very mm-hmm. well. I mean, I can do other accents well, and I have, but... I find that um, what interests me um, are um, more American, Canadian, North American characters, and, and um, you know, I, uh, I heard a really great interview with Richard Jenkins, who's in The Shape of Water, and I heard this interview yesterday, and, um, you know, you've got to keep yourself, and he talked about being bored sometimes with the work he was being presented with. And that happens to a lot of us, you know, we get, I get chief of police, I've got, you know, fathers and grandfathers and sort of benign characters that aren't, that are kind of like peripheral to the story and this and that, and also just not necessarily interesting. Either you have to make them interesting or you have to say, no, I'm not going to read for that stuff. Um, It's incumbent upon the actor to keep himself interested or herself interested. Um... Which is a tough thing to do because you can't sometimes just say, well, I'm not going to take this job because the character is not interesting. Sometimes you have to take the job because you have to eat, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's still a reality for me. I mean, I, I audition for everything I get pretty much. I mean, I get offered things very rarely, but, you know, like yesterday I auditioned and um, probably could do an audition tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. So. Oh, wow, so it's it's always, you know, you don't get nothing handed to you. Everything you got, you earned, basically. You know, you don't get... Yeah. 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 And, and, and it actually, it, it changes with age. Sometimes um, there are periods when things were a lot more, uh, you know, um, available, and, and sometimes they're not. Right now, it's kind of, it's kind of tough, because I'm in my early 60s, and, um, you know, what you look out there and you go, what's available to a guy in his early sixties? And there are lots of grandfather roles or aging chiefs of police, you know, as I mentioned. <laughs> and and actually, few or far, few and far between, you know. So, boo hoo hoo, poor pitiful me. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't get to talk about Forever Night with you. And to me, that was that was the show was ahead of its time at. And in, in that era, it was ahead of its time, and um, you was on the show for three seasons, correct? Was it three? Yeah, I did, three um, seasons. Yeah, forty-eight episodes. Yes. Um, how was that experience like? Yeah. How was that experience like working on Forever Night? Well, I mean, first and foremost, as a professional, um, what I think about is that I got to do forty-eight episodes, and, and I, I got really, really comfortable in front of the camera, so that the camera would be like a pen or something. And, yeah. You know. That, that, that as much as I would fear it and know it's in the room, I, uh, I got to work with the camera. And that is that was invaluable because after that, I mean, you know, uh, I've said this in many, many interviews, and it's, I believe it to be true, is that acting, real acting time, like being in front of an audience or being in front of a camera, is, is there's nothing like it. You can rehearse and you can you know, uh, rehearse, and you can play at it, and, and, and but um, it's like, that's like being in a flight simulator, but when you're, when you're actually on stage, and 
in front of a camera or whatever, in front of an audience, you're really flying the plane. And only in circumstances like that when things really go wrong. And they do when you're on stage many, many a time. And you know how to handle them without the audience sort of, you know, you know, people forget lines, people miss cues, whatever. The, the amazing panoply of things that can go wrong. But in real time, if you can work it, and, and, and that's where experience comes in. And, 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 and any time you're in front of a camera, um, for me, it's, it's, an, it's um, at least, you know, when you're, when you're really learning your craft or, or uh, developing your craft. So that's where Forever Night was for me. Then I also got to improvise a fair amount, which I did in that. that. My character had sort of a wide wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, I represented, uh, Skanky represented sort of the audience point of view. Like, you know, what, what's with my partner, he doesn't, he doesn't eat, he only drinks red wine, blah, blah, blah. You know, so in a way, I, I was the, you know, the audience point of view. I could say the things that the audience wanted to say, like, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you, you know, uh, how did you show up so quickly? You know, are you a vampire? You know, ha, ha. Yeah. But, um, and, and. You know, the experience of working with all these of those actors and working in Toronto, which is where I'm from, yeah. or Canada, which is where I'm from originally, you know, it was all good. It was all good. And, you know, my mother um, uh, was alive then, and she got ill and passed away a couple years after, so that was a really lovely thing that I was able to be near her when she was alive and healthy and towards the end of her life, which I didn't know at the time. But, wow. You know, and um, I got to direct, and I got to write, episode so that was really good for my uh, my career and um, I worked with Jim Perry uh, who was the producer of, of Forever Night and I that was probably one of the greater greater events because people like that you know um, I'm sure that in your world you find this you know he I wrote an episode I directed he really really helped me develop my skills in those areas so I'm indebted to him Wow, that's awesome. Um, it still it still has a loyal fan following. You notice like a lot of cult shows, they have this loyal following. Do, do you get seen outside? People say, like, hey, Skanky, Skanky. Do you get that outside? Or uh, I used to. I think they're making a movie of it now. So What? Yeah? They're gonna, yeah, they're going to be casting another guy as Skanky at some point. So. Oh, uh, oh God. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a good experience. Uh uh, I'll be honest. Um, the people at Sony Television, the guy that headed Sony at the time, was 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 not a fan of mine. And I got the gig. Um, I got the gig. It's you can read my showbiz uh, biography when I write it. Um, <laughs> I got the gig despite him, and uh, it was all one of those experiences where sometimes, I mean, as much as I enjoyed the show, it's yeah. Um, as much as I enjoyed the show, I'm getting coffee handed to me. Thank oh, you. Oh, sweet. My Finally. Love her producer. <laughs> coffee. There yeah. you go. Um, but, you know, it was, it, there was, it's sort of like the P underneath the eight mattresses. If you don't have somebody up top in the corporate world that loves you, they can make it difficult for you. And they did. Yeah. And that was a part of a big learning experience. And at the end of it, they, uh, they wanted to get rid of me after three seasons. Because they wanted to go younger, and they brought in a young, a female uh, partner, and they wanted to get rid of me so badly that they like, blew my character up in a plane accident. So there was no way I could come back. So that was a pretty—I uh, gotta say—I um, 
crummy experience. Wow, that's a good inside story because I, I just thought you probably wanted to venture out or something like that. I had no idea that was the case. Well, and also, I just basically was treated bad by the, the lords of Sony uh, Entertainment. And I just thought that those people who have a lot of money and power, and you see it nowadays with a lot of what's coming out about Harvey Weinstein, although nothing like that happened to me, but you can see yeah. people abuse power when they're powerful. And it's not enough that... Um, you fail, they have to succeed. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not bitter about this, but it's not, but it's just the truth. It's not enough that they have to, uh, they have to grind their, your, their heel in your face sometimes. And I got a lot of that after Forever Night, um, which was really a, a healthy learning experience, I must say. Yeah. Because um, not everybody in Hollywood is, is going to be supportive. As yeah. a matter of fact, a lot of people sometimes come gunning after you. So, <laughs> wow that's crazy I can't believe that but you know how was the cast how was Geraint Davis how was the rest of the cast with you they were great Geraint was good Geraint's got an incredible career at Stratford he's a he's a well known Canadian actor yeah. uh, he was great Nigel Bennett was great Nigel's in The Shape of Water right oh. now he's got a great part in the movie yeah and Nigel was uh, really lovely to work with and Catherine Disher I have nothing but um, good things to say about my fellow cast members. Uh, You know, you do 48 episodes of shows and you're working. We we had these. We shot from 4 or 5 in the afternoon until 8, 9, 10 in the morning. When you do deep nights like that, and we did 12 months of those, that can be, that's tough. I mean, even in your, not your world, but I mean, if you work third shift, if you work in the post office and you're, they, 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 cycle you out after two months because it's generally unhealthy to work that late. So there were a lot of divorces, um, uh, nervous breakdowns, people, uh, drugs, blah, 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 you know? So I was glad that I deflected. I mean, I, I, I missed all those bullets and didn't, you know, I, I saw a lot of drugs in second city and I saw a lot of people get high, particularly cocaine, which is, I think, you know, the devil's handbag or whatever the hell you want to call it. It's, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. It's a horrible But, um, you know, you're shooting at 4 in the morning. When you see Forever Night, I wish they burnished in the corner, shot at 4, 5 a.m., 3.30 a.m. you got to be there. you got to be on top of it. So I mastered what Gary Cooper and all these, Bill Clinton learned, were the, the, uh, the art of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the quick, what do they call it? The, um, the power nap. That's power. right. Thank you. <laughs> But also, you know, just to be present. So there was a lot of stuff that happened in Forever Night around cast members and this and that that I heard about afterwards, but I just had to maintain my own thing. Yeah. And also, you know, um, I don't know how to say this, Efren, without sort of... But a lot of people get into acting, and then they're not about the acting. They're about um, trying to get... Uh, trying to get famous, trying to get laid, trying to get, you know, and then when, and unfortunately you see a lot of people who are, you know, being outed for various forms of bad behavior and you see this. And, and, and when I was doing Forever Night, I didn't see it in my fellow cast members, but I certainly learned a lot about a lot of human nature there. So, yeah, you know, every, and, um, yeah, everything was fame, fame is a really weird, weird thing. You know? Yeah. I've worked with some people that have become very, very uber famous, and they, they, it changes them. Yeah. So. 
like do they do they like you say a lot of people come to me like do they change like do they forget you or something like that or do they not talk to you anymore because they're like uber famous or is it like that type of there have been instances of that i mean you know that's just in a strange way that's just people um there's there are people who use one another a little bit like a ladder in hollywood i mean they sort of step on you and go go beyond i mean um uh, I've had a few instances of that. I think what changes people the most is just the fact that they have that much attention. Yeah. And they can easily think that that attention is all there is and that um, they forget about other people. Yeah. You know, I think I think fame can be really, really hard on people. And I don't blame people for, you know, it, it sort of grabs you and takes you through uh, sort of set certain sets of moves. I mean, in a way, it's like being put on a conveyor belt. And you invariably get experienced certain things. And a lot of them are not good. Yeah. Um, um, what, what has been your biggest regret in life, John? My biggest regret in life? Well, I live a life without regrets. Okay. Um, I try to, at least. Okay. Um, well, one of the things I regret is that my father never saw me in the films. My father died before uh, I got into movies, and that—that that, um, he never saw that I had success. Although I think he felt that that was going to happen. Yeah. Um. Maybe I should have moved to Hollywood earlier, you know. Um. But I, 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 I honestly, I can't really think of that I have a greatest regret in my life. If I were to live like that, mm-hmm. um, then I think I would have had a great regret if I didn't become an actor. If I didn't follow my heart when I was 18 or 19, and it was a big, 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 big deal to me that I'd follow my path. And, and my parents saw that. And um, so my greatest regret would have been had I not pursued my, my career. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can honestly say, yeah, I've done things in my life that I regret, mm-hmm. but there's not greatest regret in my life. And I can't, you know... Um, you know, they all have to do with keeping people alive longer. Like, I wish one of the greatest regrets I had is I wish we, we had told our father that he should have an open heart surgery instead he died of a heart attack. You know, things like that. Yeah. I wow. But honestly, Efren, you know, um, things happen in life and in show business. You have to get used to it. Sometimes you think, well, this part is the one for me. And, and you know, if I don't get it, I'm going to die. You don't get it. Yeah. You don't die. And life goes on, and then you see this person that did it, and maybe the film didn't work out. Um, you know, uh, so I try not to live like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I also think that it's important that you live your life according to your own values and you adjust it accordingly. I'm seeing a lot of guys my age that are basically giving up or, or not, you know, in my profession. And, um, you know... I don't feel like there's a time stamp on me, so I just want to keep on going. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the single the, best... You know, the, the regret question is, you know, um, it's an interesting one, but yeah. I, I think I've answered it. <laughs> All right. Um, what is the single best advice you ever received from another from another peer? Um, stay out of my eyeline. Or <laughs> stay out of my light. <laughs> don't block my light. No, um... <laughs> The best advice I got from a peer. Yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, um, that's a really good question. I, um, um, you know, um, save your money, <laughs> um, was what one actor once told me, which I yeah. tell all young actors when I see them, hey, are you saving your money? That's the first thing I say. <laughs> I met this kid from Saturday Night Live the other night, he plays Putin, Yeah. and a uh, forget the, the, the actor's name. Lovely, lovely man. Yeah. And I didn't recognize him, and, and I, I don't know SNL as well as most people do. And we were talking, and then he said, well, I happen to be on Saturday Night Live. I said, really? Well, you save your money. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you sound like my dad. I said, well, better him, you know. Yeah. Somebody. Um, uh, let, me, let me reach for that one. The... Uh, I think an actor told me a few years ago, and this has nothing to do with acting, but he said that the world can be divided into two groups of people. Yeah. And I thought, holy moly, here he comes, he's going to say the most racist or anti-Semitic thing. You know? yeah. I'm going to hate him. He said, those who have a sense of humor and those who don't. And I think in a lot of ways you can divide the world into those two groups of people. Yeah. And if that's the case, I'd rather work with those who have a sense of humor. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I'll probably think of 20 things that people have said to me. Um, I think the kindest thing that uh, happened to me was uh, when I was at Second City, my producer, Joyce Sloan, basically put her arm around me and said, don't get in your own way. Mm. And I think when I listened to Richard Jenkins on, on the radio the other day, this wonderful interview on NPR yesterday, that I sat in my car for 20, you know, it was one of those things you don't want to leave your car because you're listening to it. Yeah. And, 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 um, to realize that you're enough as a performer. Everybody thinks that they want to be something else, or you know, I look at uh, Humphrey Bogart, or I wish I was him, or I wish I was so-and-so. And, and, and the thing that you've got to really realize is that you're enough as a person. And that's the tough thing sometimes, and, and to, to know that you're the instrument, and, and stop hiding what you're hiding, and just let it all flow. And I think that the, the greatest race in my life is with my competition is with me. When I go to an audition, there are five other actors there. I'm not competing with them. I'm competing with them myself. Mm. How how unblemished can I be? How how focused? How much present? How how real can I be? How much can I serve the work? How honest can I be? Those are the questions that I ask myself daily. And and unfortunately, with a lot of performers, the older they get, the more shit that they pile on themselves. The mm. more tricks and things. A wonderful story that I was told many years ago was a person I know was about to direct John Gilgood, the great British actor, and he was, the act, the director was his first time gig, he was 26 or 7, and John Gilgood is in his late 70s, and he said to Mr. Gilgood, sir, you go ahead, do your, do your John Gilgood thing, you're wonderful, and Gilgood grabs him, you know, with his hand, and he's shaking emotionally, he says, no, no, young man, you don't understand. The older I get, the more I go into my bag of tricks. I need someone like you to tell me what not to do. And I think that that's really the key, is not to, not to cover yourself in, in, in your tricks. And, you know, the more people get into their professions, the more sometimes they get ensconced in their own bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. So the less likely they are to learn. And I think for an actor, that's a real deadly thing. So if I can keep myself young and fresh, that's what's more important to me. Yeah. And, and you know what? I don't care if people recognize me in the supermarket or not, and, and or, or if people know who I am. What what I want, if people know when they see me on the screen, is that person real? 
Gotcha. Um, any um, what do you think the shape of water is going to take it this year? I yes, I do because I think that it's truly a cinematic. It's 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 a, it's a film that will last the ages. When you go back ten years ten years from now, and you look at the films from this year, and you tell me Three Billboards is a better movie or other ones, I don't think so. Okay. I think that the totality of the movie, the thoughts and ideas behind the movie, which are supremely which are really, really wonderful, you know, that, that love transcends, um, you know, you know, the, the, you can you can extrapolate so many wonderful things to that movie. Yeah. You know, that love transcends vocalization, that sometimes love happens in the most curious of places and all those sort of things. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the movie. I'm a big fan of Guillermo. I'm a big fan of films that tell the truth. And mm -hmm. strangely enough, I think that film tells more of a truth than Three Billboards. Yeah. Or, or other films, you know. I haven't seen I, Tanya yet. I mean, you know, there are a lot of great movies. Yeah. But um, there are only a few uh, films that are masterpieces. And to that end, Shape of Water is a masterpiece. How was it like working with Guillermo? For the uh, five seconds I worked with them, I mean, uh, <laughs> for the two or three days, <laughs> yeah. um, honestly, you really feel like you're being placed and put in a beautiful painting. Wow. Like, you, you think, oh, okay, I'm going to put you there. And <clears throat> the specificity, the joy, the curiosity with which he approaches everything, uh, if, I could, if I could hang around a person like that every day, I'd be happy. Wow. He's a maestro, you know? I'm sure you feel it when you work with somebody who's like really gifted or you meet somebody at church or wherever you you know go and you go, this person has no ego. There's a sort of a beauty and selflessness to them. Mm -hmm. The best people I've worked with, their egos are so much in check, you know, that you go, wow. <laughs> like I remember meeting um, a great opera singer, not Paparotti, but the other one, uh, he's still alive. Uh. Um, no, uh, Doming Placido Domingo. No, um, Placido Domingo. Yeah. And he was so cool. I mean, he was so there, and he never at one at any moment had to whip out "I'm Placido Domingo." Yeah. Because he was Placido Domingo. He was twenty feet tall, but he was five foot nine and ten. You know, and he was right in front of me with his grandson, and we we're. Uh, it was just. It's revelatory when you meet people that are. That, that's who I want to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. You know, and, and, and like, I'm 62 and I still want to be something, which I think is still cool. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't want to be anything anymore when they get older, which I think is basically akin to stopping to dream. Yeah. And stopping, stopping life, but then you're, you're getting my philosophy. <laughs> and John, um, my final question for you is what would the John of today tell the John of yesterday? Slow down. Slow down? Yeah, but still, I like, move a bit too fast. Um, 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 I would say you're good enough. I don't think that I've always thought I was good enough. Yeah. You know, and, and the one thing about rejection in Hollywood, and I'm being, I'm being real honest with you. I mean, this town can beat you up, and you can have, you can have great accomplishments, but when you see wonderful actors and you go, well, well, you know, what happened to their face? Why did they change their face? Because they, uh, or why did they do this and that? Because they had great success and then um, they wanted it again. 
Yeah. And like a drug, it didn't give them the same buzz the second time around, so they needed... So I just have to make sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And that, you know, everybody's life, everybody's disappointed by how their lives turn out, even the most, you know, the most successful people. So it's it's dealing with your disappointments in a constructive way, I think. is That's what I would have said to my younger self is, is 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 learn more from your disappointments. Learn more from your. I like that. Learn more from your disappointments. You know, also like experience is his own teacher because when you do something and you fail at it, you know it makes you want to excel and do it more because once you know why you failed at it, once you know why you didn't accomplish that goal, you know it, it depends on the individual because everything is subjective. But it's almost like you want to learn it. Right. Yeah, you're almost excited to do it again. Yeah. Because, um, because when it succeeds, you go, okay, I did learn something. Mm-hmm. That 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 failure was worth it. I honestly think that failure, I mean, is very very important. And not succeeding is probably more important sometimes than succeeding, in terms of what it teaches you. But um, I would rather succeed more than. <laughs> of course, we all I would. would. Rather be- something successful than not successful yeah we all would um john do you have any upcoming stuff coming up that you could talk about or anything you'd like to add i got a film i did uh, with this young director named steve levine uh, steve fine when i'm saying steve levine i have a friend <laughs> steve levine. Uh, a different person steven yeah. fine i should say and steven did a movie called um love shot which I'm in, and we're I'm executive producing it also, so we're re-editing that. I'm also putting a couple songs in the film. Um, uh, a film that I'm looking forward to seeing this Friday night is called The Unicorn, directed by Robert Schwartzman, who's Jason Schwartzman's brother. Oh, okay. And uh, Robert is uh, uh, Talia Shire's son, uh, and, and he's a musician in his own right, and, and he's directed a movie which is called The Unicorn, which is a comedy. I'm looking forward to seeing that, and that's going to be premiering at South by Southwest. Oh, okay. And then I got a film in Canada called a show called Twenty Two Chaser, which uh, is supposed to be showing at Tribeca, I think. And um, I have another one. I have another film, Twenty Two Chaser, and um, ooh, what's it called? Right, there's another movie, but um, uh, I'm blanking on. No, but then I did. I'm on the TV show Suits. Yeah. Um, I have a reoccurring. Um, might be shooting some more of that. I just did a, a show, a sci-fi show called The Expanse. The Expanse, okay. Which is a story about your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I don't know you well enough. Usually, I make that joke about people I know who have big stomachs. <laughs> But anyway, um, that's it, Efren. And, and, you know, I, I'm going to direct a movie. I've got an album coming out. I've got lots of good things happening. Oh, you have an album coming out? You, you sing? Yep. Too hip for the room, yep. Oh. I sing. Uh, John, so, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Much appreciated. You got it. And I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one, folks.